Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guests are Carrie Hathorn and Belissa Cohen. Carrie initiated the founding of LGB Fight Back and is currently the group's national organizer. She's had a 20-year career as a left-wing professional organizer, political strategist, and grassroots community organizer. She's a longtime member of the LGB community and has been out since 2000. Melissa Cohen is a former journalist and corporate writer and a co-founder of LGB Fight Back. She's a lifelong progressive and has been a member of the LGB community since 1981. LGB Fight Back is a multi-generational U.S.-based grassroots organization of lesbian, gay, and bi people who advocate for the interests of the LGB community. They state, we promote self-love and radical self-acceptance among homosexual and bisexual men and women, end quote. I welcome Carrie and Belissa to Savage Minds. Your statement that you put out earlier this month shows the reasons why your group formed when you wrote, society at large is being gaslighted by activists into supporting the false idea that trans is gay adjacent. The transgender movement, driven by medical corporations and big pharma, reinforces conservative stereotypes of male and female behavior and directly targets LGB people for medical experimentation that shortens their lifespan, turns them into lifelong medical patients, and renders them sterile. And then you wrote, trans is not gay plus, it's not gay 2.0. I love this statement. Of course, many people, including those in the gay and lesbian community will have issues with this because we have been slowly boiled, frogged uh, into believing that tea has something to do with us. And I had the advantage of not living in the States when the tea was added. I was in another country. So when I came back to the US around 98 or 99, I remember the tea being added, asking people at a gay bar, what is the tea? What is that to do with us? And their response was, oh, well, you know, they're oppressed too. And I'm thinking, well, if, if we were in an organization such as anthropologists, I'm a member of an anthropological organization, and they added stevedores, I would wonder what do stevedores have to do with anthropology for a professional organization? And the same goes for Friends of Dorothy. I mean, sexuality was something that People before us and our generation, or my generation, your generations, have fought for, and not in the way that we're seeing trans activism fighting. Our generation fought for the rights to keep our names on leases, for gay men at the time to get access to drugs, to have the FDA approve drugs, et cetera, et cetera. We know the story, but so many in our same community, bizarrely, have been forced into seeing what is a medical pathology, or rather a fake medical pathology as well, we can get to that later, being collapsed within homosexual desire. Now, I'm not going to leave out the B, but I am bracketing the B in the sense of, we all know, I don't know, I've been there too, where there's a phase that a lot of gay people go through where they call themselves bisexual because they're not sure, or vice versa. The main point here is that we've been sold a bill of sale on something that's rather fraudulent on the basis. There's been zero evidence that transgender identity is, is a thing. We've been all sold the bill of sale also that we all have an internal gender identity, hence we're labeled as cis 
and you know, women are suddenly the new oppressors, uh, white women, super evil oppressors. So then the gay community has somehow piggybacked on this. And then when you start to look at, and I've been, I'm about to finish a piece that deals with some of this right now in the backlash against Jesse Singal, but you look at the HRC, they had a $14 million budget for fake news and their mandate is almost all trans. You look at the organization that blacklisted Singal and JK Rowling, GLAD, go to their website, it's all trans, there's nothing gay about it. And the reason for this, well, we know that people began to accept our sexuality and it's less and less of a problem as time progresses. Right now, there could be a backlash. So can you talk to me about the statement you made the kinds of reactions you've received, and even give a bit of background into how you formed, because it would be great for our listeners to hear your story and this statement, which sort of puts you on the map. Well, I think that I personally, and I think Carrie too, we're allergic to lies, and we're allergic to fake news, and we both enjoy engaging in critical thinking. And reality, biological reality also. So when we hear a lot of this stuff, I think in the beginning we, were, we, we went along with it, both of us in our different ways. And, but more and more we looked around us and, and read and experienced things. I know that I saw my local, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, I'll just out myself, and there's the biggest LGBT whatever center here, I think in the United States. And I saw the way that it went from um, somewhat minimally featuring services for women, lesbians and bisexual women to not really serving women and lesbians and at all. And just um, that was kind of a, a material thing I could see, a concrete thing. And um, the more and more I looked around me, I just saw that we needed to represent the LGB. We were the people that could really speak to why the T didn't belong with us without getting called homophobic. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that was a, that was a big motivation on my end. Certainly <clears throat> when I was seeing how parents were being treated, whose kids were being trans um, or whose kids were threatening that they wanted to be trans and medical doctors were jumping all over it for profits, um, you know, and, and the way that the parents were being, you know, um, put in the light of being bigoted, put in the light of being conservative, put in the light of, you know, hate, um, and, and that's totally not the reality of, of what's actually going on. So for me, a big motivator was seeing what's happening with the youth right now and the kids in particular. Um, but it, it goes way, way, way beyond that. I think, you know, for my generation, I came out in 2000 and, you know, was at university in the early 2000s and was, you know, in the queer studies, pro, you know, in queer studies classes. And they were really starting to launch into the, you know, 
training everybody up for this, you know, in the, in the universities, the queer theories and the, all that stuff. And so I was really indoctrinated from a really young age. Um, and, uh, and I've seen over the, you know, 2000, 2010, it was like, where did the butch lesbians go? Um, where, where do they go? I mean, when I, in the early 2000s, it was femme visibility. And then by 2010, it was like, where the hell are the butches? Um, and then it just increased. It just got, it just took off. And, and so, and I was also in DC and starting in 2008. Um, and I saw how the LGBT, what we call LGBT Inc, um, corporate Inc, LGBT, you know, all the organizations just increasingly were focusing on uh, trans, any kind of, you know, trans legislation or trans focus or, oh, we need to be trans inclusive and, and we have to hire this, you know, and so it was just this kind of snowball effect that really, really took off. I think in 2015, I think we can see a really spike um, in, in all of this. So we just saw a devolving of the community, certainly um, over time. And also, I think in our personal lives, I mean, I've known a lot of people who are, um, you know, gay or lesbian, um, bisexual people who, who went down this transitioning track. And um, so I think we've been affected really personally, myself very personally, um, from all of this, in addition to kind of really starting to understand now the political landscape of how this even happened. And so we've been going back over how did this happen and where did the money come from to make this happen and who is behind this movement? And so we've been really focusing on trying to figure all of this out. Certainly we've seen from the work of people like Jennifer Billick tracking the money back to well, a load of people, mostly uh, white men, wealthy white men who have foundations like Arcus in the piece I'm about to put up today, GLAD is funded by a slew of these men to include Arcus, to include pharmaceutical companies. People on the left are very quick to get on the, you know, on the bicycle to do the analysis when it comes to the hard work about the military industrial complex. They are not willing to do that same work when it comes to the medical industrial complex and this fraud, which is paradoxically killing our community and they're cheerleading for it, you know? And I can't tell you how many friends I've lost over this. Uh, jobs, when we all know people, and myself, I just can't pitch any more to this. Um, in fact, you know, when you have to run pieces on this, it's gonna be with places that are right of center. But let's go back to when this happened. My whole theory is this. 1996, Crixavan is approved by the FDA. Gay men stopped dropping like flies. I was doing work, social science research for the gay men's health crisis in New York City. At that point, they had internal reviews of their mandate. Even the title was put up for questioning. Should we be calling ourselves the gay men's health crisis given that the demographics for AIDS today is no longer white gay men? In fact, gay is factoring in less and less. It's often a Hispanic man and woman issue, a black man and woman issue, straight, by the way. Okay. I did a lot of research. Um, I was a volunteer there because, uh, you know, my brother died of AIDS. Uh, half of my community died of AIDS. It was devastating for our community. So what I saw then, quickly on the tracks of this, were debates in gay magazines about gay marriage inequality. So that sort of took over. 
then gender became the hot button topic. Now I missed it because I was not living in the States. Came back, as I mentioned earlier, the tea was added. But one thing that you guys might remember, do you remember around this time of 96, 97, 98, there was a whole trend of barebacking and the bug chasers, they were called. And these were often young gay men who wanted to have a community and they romanticized the gay men's movements within the AIDS era of the AIDS era, meaning men having no access to drugs and dropping like flies. So this was going on and you had criticisms of it. I remember some really great articles by the likes of Andrew Sullivan and Michael, Michelangelo Signorelli. And I was thinking, okay, this is an odd social movement here. Why are young gay men who are moving to New York City, because New York City, like Washington, D.C., as you probably know, are cities that are full of people who were never born and raised there. I mean, there are natives, but if you walk down the streets of both cities, you throw a stone, it's in all likelihood you'll meet someone who wasn't born and raised there. People migrate to these cities. So you've got a lot of people moving to New York to be gay and to be out. On the same hand, these kinds of trends like trying to get AIDS. These, the, the bug chasers were young men trying to get AIDS because they romanticized it. And I thought, that's odd. There was criticism that came down from that. But we sort of didn't have, on the left, we didn't have checks on how far are we going in our liberation. I mean, should we be talking about ethics and morals and so forth. Skipping from barebacking, then we've got this whole issue of gender identity that was put into place and the debate around the same time. It was very current in French academia. And at the time I was living in North Africa and was reading a lot about this, but there was the search for the gay gene and the gay brain and the gay, born this way or not. So we were able to get marriage equality passed through what I call the pity party oh, poor things, they can't help it that they're gay. Now, I had a bit of an issue with this. Uh, there's no science on either side of this. Um, well, there's a bit on the socialization side, but whatever. Um, and I thought, well, I don't want to have human rights because people see us as like similar to the AIDS victim of the 80s as pathetic and we can't help ourselves. Why not, you know, we have rights because we should have rights, right? So can you sort of talk about where the gay community started eating up the narrative and why? I mean, I've given you some of my thoughts, but you all have different geographies in the States and different experiences. And I would like to see, especially also from the younger generation, how has this been so perverted? You know, because it's often the people who are more cynical uh, tend to be older, but then when you're older, you have less fear of speaking out. So maybe the younger are in fact cynical, but afraid to speak out, if you catch my drift. You spoke a bit about the left, but I'd like to know more about, because the gay community, obviously we know from the log cabin Republicans, is not uniquely left. So how is it yeah. that the gay community got on board with a narrative of having an interior gender identity, which is anathema to our narrative in the generations before, even back to Oscar Wilde. It's it's really interesting. So we're a multi-generational organization. So so we do come at this from different perspectives. And you know, so I take Gen X on this one, but but I do I do think for my generation it was it was fun coming in from the universities. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that there was a deterioration of the lesbian community, kind of like I was saying in the 2000, 2005, 2010. And so, and then I think it increased with especially for the younger younger generation. Um, mm -hmm. They just, and so, and I think that, so it was the, you know, the queering of the community 
per se, but I also think what was some of the factors is one of the things that we think is really plays into this is the shame around homophobia. And, you know, we can say was, is it better now than it was, you know, in the sixties and seventies, eighties, nineties. Um, it's, it's really hard to say, I think, because, um, you know, I work with, with young people, um, who, who are experiencing the same types of stuff that I did when I was in high school, which is like, if you tell anybody that you like girls, um, then you, all of us, your best friend becomes your enemy now and slanders you. Um, and so I'm hearing stories like this coming from, from young people. Um, and so even though it seems like today it's, they're also woke and they're also okay with gay people or whatever, but I think that that's not actually the experience that, that young um, lesbians and, and bi and, and gay people are actually having. Um, and, and so I think that for the younger generations, they've been indoctrinated through the schools now um, because of these organizations like GLAD and HRC and uh, Gleason. And, you know, so they, they've, they've really done a number on us in terms of how they've gotten this into the culture. But I also think that I've seen, and I think we've probably all seen this with the, the lesbians or, or that we've seen that have trans, which is this kind of trying to escape from lesbianism, you know, like it's so uncomfortable to, to be a lesbian, to, to be a woman, to, to be gay that, that, well, let me figure out how to not be that, right? And so we, we feel like shame is a huge, huge factor that, that plays into this, um, the, the born in the wrong body narrative. The interesting thing I found in writing this piece on GLAD and their public shaming of people, they had a blacklist that they have now reduced down to just Bush and Pence, which is hugely ROFL. Um, what, they're worried that they're not gonna sue them. And I've been looking at GLAD's money. They get an enormous amount of funding from the same organizations that are making the circle of the pharmaceutical companies and they're getting pharmaceutical money. They have on their PDF outlining their financial situation, they have a page dedicated to what's called the GLAD Media Institute. They have a GLAD transgender media program as well. They have a Spanish language and Latinx media and communities. I'm a Spanish speaker. I can't even tell you how offensive that is. No one has ever discussed that, right? We're just, we, we're just supposed to run with Latin. You tell people in Latin America this and they laugh. I mean, you talk about cultural appropriation. That's it. And then they have a youth engagement and they have a special person who, a media spokesperson who trains everyone, including Hollywood, and in how to talk about and write about and direct everything trans people or trans-identified people, because we know that this is a narrative. And then you go, well, their list of sponsors are, are phenomenal. And the people that they've tapped, like, you know, we saw it with Elizabeth Warren's pronouns, right? Which is very disappointing. But you have, you have famous stars pictured on their pages. And it's really indicative of how far the capture has gone. There has not been one place it has not captured. In the piece I'm writing, I, I list only half a dozen media outlets and university programs that they have literally created. Pritzker having donated money to create wings for treating quote unquote transgender children on and on. And then they have agendas to combat conversion therapy, which for us who remember conversion therapy, it's usually ROFL. Why are gay people not seeing this for the conversion therapy that it is? Because this is gay conversion therapy, and it's a more pernicious kind than pray the gay away. I would honestly prefer the pray the gay away type, because at least you don't die of cancer. 
Well, Julian, very quickly, I want to go back to your last question, which is mm -hmm. how did this happen? And it touches on what you just said, which is that originally, and I'm old enough to kind of know, I, I was aware of the gay rights movement and the women's movement, though I was a, a little too young to participate, but they were grassroots movements. And I'm the beneficiary of those movements and there was a strong lesbian community, women's community, and there was a gay community. And as gay culture, the LGB, got increasingly corporatized, and mostly it's talked about with gay pride and the pride festivals, but the whole culture got increasingly corporatized. You know, the, the women's bookstores and women's festivals and everything slowly kind of died out, and all the money went to these big corporate organizations like GLAAD and HRC, and we all know the alphabet soup. So that left women after the generation of, of the women's movement and the gay rights movement, the slightly younger women, without a real community. When I was, you know, a young woman in my city, there, there were a lot of places you could go. There was more than one lesbian bar. There were kind of a few. Some of them opened and closed. They weren't there for always so long. And then there was one that was always there. And then it closed. And the nights, the dance nights that moved around or were in once a week, those kind of closed. And some of it is the natural evolution. Things, you know, go for a while and then they're done but nothing sprang up in their place to replace them. And um, there's probably a lot of different factors, but you know, the, the upshot is there's really no place that I know of where young women can go and gather and meet each other. In terms of the dating apps, the last time I was on a dating app, there were non-lesbians who were claiming a lesbian identity. Lots of and men a lesbian identity. <laughs> so many. It's so, there's so many. Yeah, women. and now from what I see on social media, it's just crazy overwhelming. And the problem is that wouldn't be such a problem except that if a woman says on a dating app that she only wants to date women, she is tossed off the dating app. She's banned. So she cannot state her sexual preference. And um, it's not a question of even that these people can't do what they want to do. It's that lesbians can't do what they want to do. Um, gay men are having the same problem. Exactly. Well, now we've heard about the, the boxer ceiling more recently. But one thing that is interesting for me and that a lot of people who are either new to the subject or still haven't delved enough into it, because it's, it's very disturbing when you start to delve into it, is there's a huge distinction, both historically and practically, as to why the rates of women have risen so high and young girls actually have risen so high in terms of referrals to gender clinics. And the reasons why women are transitioning or girls and why boys and men are transitioning, two different things entirely. And I think a lot of people miss it. 
Can you go through why men uh, have been historically the primary actors in transitioning and why now women and girls are? I, I mean, I feel like there's part of this that goes back to, um, it depends on the type of men that we're talking about, right? So, but you know, we we want to focus on on the homosexuals and bisexuals. Like that's that's our that's our talking point. You know, like there's yeah. a lot of reasons why why straight men are doing this, and 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 they are. I mean, ultimately behind this movement. I mean, they're absolutely the the, the rich billionaires funding this whole whole thing. Um, but I think the reasons why homosexual and bisexual men are susceptible to it. Are, are, are definitely different reasons that, than, than lesbians and bisexual women. Um, and why we're seeing the trends in young girls. I mean, the, the trends in young girls today is just so obvious. It's, it's like, it's like the, the kind of sexism that I think that young women are experiencing today is like, it just, it seems to me like it's just the good old fashioned type of sexism that we had, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, these very typical stereotypical ideas of what a woman is. And if you don't check all the boxes, then maybe you're not a girl, you're actually a boy. Um, and and the kids' brains aren't fully developed. So so when they hear the narrative of born in the wrong body, they, they believe it um, because they really don't, they really don't know any better. And I think when it comes to our own community, it's, it's just, a comp more complicated issue because it's like we are we're vulnerable to the the transing narrative um because it's just um you know if if a <laughs> if, if a lesbian can transition uh and and you know transition uh but if can can medicalize enough to pass as a male then that lesbian couple now looks like a straight couple and they pass as straight and so that's a totally different motivation than for a teenage girl who's straight? Well, the reason why I asked the question about the difference in the two demographics is this. In, in a recent interview I did with Ray Blanchard, who's a specialist in anogatophilia, he's noticed that in fact, the historical categories for men transitioning were autogonophilia on the one hand, largely straight men who get sexually aroused to imagine themselves or see themselves as women, and the other category, which were repressed gay men. And that second category is all but disappeared. Skip to what Blanchard does not cover, but what others do, this category of young women, girls, being put on what Lisa Littman would say rapid onset gender dysphoria track. Um, even one could argue, and as an anthropologist, I do raise this question if we're not looking at a vast case of social contagion. And the way in which lesbians are, well, first of all, women were never, you know, persona grata. We were always shown the door, uh, straight or not. And lesbians never really had a place in society in terms of acceptance. There was always that, so who's the man, right? These are the questions that, you know, culture asks us. Which one of you's the man? How do you do it? Like, it's like, what, we're not a museum. So I wonder why so many within the gay community have not addressed this. Even talking about autogonophilia has been verboten for many. I've recently broached the subject because I think it's time we start to talk about this. And yes, people, you know, don't kink shame is what I'm going to hear from, you know, uh, people like uh, Jamila on Twitter. But the reality is that kinks can be harmless and, you know, personal and all that you want. 
but we're not looking at a personal kink. We're looking at a societal contagion. We're looking at generations of kids being medicalized, sterilized, and their bodies mutilated. And I would take this even further. People like, you know, Scott Nugent, people are, are, are saying, oh, well, she's doing a great job, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, as you know, Joey got into trouble recently for a piece she wrote because she criticized Nugent. And I have to say, I agreed with her piece very much. Why is it that we're exceptionalizing children? I mean, yes, it's up there with white fluffy cats. So you can't, you know, if you talk about children and white fluffy cats, no one will criticize you. But if you talk about adults, then you get the, well, I have agency and I choose to be a prostitute. So, you know, we're called swerfs as well as turfs. Well, let's, let's take a look at that because the very same pressure that's put upon young girls and, and women and young women to transition, we're talking about a huge social pressure that is affecting people in their late teens and 20s. And we all know, we were all 25 before. You're extremely impressionable. The human brain is not even formed. Scientists estimate between 27 and 29. So why are we even accepting the fact that damage is being done to legal adults? Why is this being allowed? And this is where it hits our community because what I feel is this, is that the transgender community uses our people to as body shields, saying, oh, look, we, we, we've all seen this. Would you want him in your toilet? And they're showing a woman who's taken so much testosterone that she looks like a member of ZZ Top. And it's like, would you want ZZ Top in your bathroom? <laughs> so can you, you know, can you talk yeah. about the way that this propaganda has unfolded? Because it's surreal. As if we've never seen a woman with a beard, right? Right. Well, I would say rather than than normalizing the different ways to be a woman and it's expanding non on nonconformity and ex teaching everybody to accept that kind of difference. They the propaganda is encouraging us to accept the only kind of difference is is the binary medicalized, born in the wrong body narrative of difference. So they're just weaponizing, you know, that narrative to, to further demonize lesbians and nonconforming women. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it comes to the, like, the true trans narrative, right? So there's, but isn't there a small percentage of people that are really trans? You know, what about those people? And, um, you know, show, where's the, where's the, where's the proof of any of that? And, I, and what I would say to that is, it's almost always actual homosexuals and bisexuals who they are considering the true trans, right? That's right. always who it is. That's always your example, our masculine, so-called masculine women and so-called, you know, feminine gay men, right? Like, you know, that's, that's it. It's, I mean, and those, <laughs> these were once the, like, the hallmarks of one of the ways we would talk about our community, you know, butch femme and, and effeminate and, you know, flamboyant and like the ways that we actually talk about ourselves. And now that's just been weaponized against us. And, and therefore that justifies the, the transitioning of, of our bodies. 
and the medicalization of the community. So, so we just, you know, we're just like no to that. And, and I think that one of the ways forward is that we just have to absolutely say that we're not going to affirm any trans, trans anything. We're not going to affirm transgender. We're not going to affirm transsexual. We're not going to affirm non-binary. We're not going to affirm anything that has to do with trans ideology. And that it creates a complicated situation because for our, you know, our, our communities are, are complex and, and there's, I mean, most any of us are going to know people who've tried to do this or want to do this or feel uncomfortable in their bodies. And, you know, and and then how do we deal with that internally? Um, and, and I think what, what we're saying is that we actually have to create a strong boundary to say that, no, we're not going to go down. We're not going to allow ourselves to medicalize. No, we're not going to support people from our own community who choose to be medicalized. We're not going to support that. We're not going to support them. We're not going to fund them. We're not going to platform them. Um, in fact, you know, those are kind of like the last people that should be platformed from our community because all it does is send a mixed message to young people that says, well, I did it and it was great, but you shouldn't do it, child, <laughs> right? It's bad for you, but look at me. I, I'm, I'm a trans man. Look how great I look, right? I mean, it's insane. It's freaking insane. And then, and then the cheerleading liberals are saying, oh, this is great. True trans, you know, so it's, it's and brave. Well, it's interesting because we see the same cheerleading from white middle-class people who have been the same ones cheerleading uh, Black Lives Matter. And there's this kind of, and, and I've been talking about this with people because I'm very far to the left. And I was really shocked to see people like Adolf Reed, the platform from leftist agendas last year for pointing out the racism on the left. There is, we are in the throes of race and gender essentialism. And you know, the trans movement is far worse. We're seeing it, I, I call it medieval, because when you start to look back at texts at the time of like, you know, Gregorian choirs chanting away, there was this notion of the internal spirit, the internal soul that had to be curated by the priest, by the church. We're seeing this. And these are institutional ills that I fear for the future now, because it will take a lot to back, walk, walk this back. We won't be able to just tell kids, oh, we were wrong. They're gonna want answers. And they're gonna want, in all these placements that you've mentioned in the schools from GLAD, HRC, there are organizations in every country that have their GLAD and their HRC, Stonewall in the UK. They are poisoning these kids' minds with utter bullshit. Like there is zero proof of a gender identity. Let me just repeat that. There is zero proof of a gender identity. Now, if the trans subject will say, but I feel like a woman. And then you, I'm sure you've all said this to them. What does that feel like? Because I can tell you, I've pushed out three babies for my vagina and I don't know what it's like to feel like a woman. Now that was a female thing, okay? But they're claiming both feeling woman, which is a gender performative, and they're feeling female, which is an impossibility because sex is immutable. And I know I've just said 15,000 trans Phobic things right now, and I've probably killed a bunch of white, <laughs> fluffy somethings, puppies, guinea pigs. But the reality is that there is no scientific basis for any of this hogwash. It has been mandated through, however, the American Psychological and Psychiatric Society uh, Associations, the American Medical Association. We are seeing that right wing doctors are more on track to address this with their re categorization of their own medical ethics where they're going against the American Medical Association and saying, this is child abuse. I'm on board with them. I actually agree with them. 
And I'd say that there's a lot of medical abuse happening here in the same way that many of us might have uncles or, or seniors in our lives who were put into, I know of a friend who was put into a medical institution and given shock therapy because he was gay. Now, I see no difference. In fact, I see this as a bit more pernicious because the long-term effects of these surgeries and hormones will be permanent. And shock therapy, ugh, there are people who suffered long-term issues and there are people who did not, aside from the trauma of the memory. So we have a real big monster in front of us that needs to be taken down. And you've got people writing about it. I've been working on this for, I think, nine years at this point, And I couldn't get published in the left at this point to save my life. The very publication where I was publishing before on this told me about four years ago, five years ago, we can't run gender pieces anymore. And they have since been running pro-trans pieces. And they themselves, my editors, were threatened by this lobby. Both of our daughters were threatened with rape. And we were both threatened with rape and murder. So my daughter was months old at the time, too. So what we're facing is a lobby that has the wherewithal, as we saw with GLAAD and the attacks on Jesse Singal. They've been attacking him since his piece in 2018 hit New York Magazine, all about desistance, childhood desistance. He interviewed Kenneth Zucker, who has since been handed a very healthy win in the courts, both in terms of his reputation being restored and in terms of monetary remuneration for the pains that that clinic in Toronto caused him. But we have seen no acknowledgement by the many media places such as the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times that have been running this garbage along with the Guardian, the Independent, you know the score. Why are we having to do this with absolutely no help from the very media that 20 years ago was on our side saying, pro, you know, gay marriage, same-sex marriage. And, you know, Obama, when he started running for president, I was part of a Skype group that he had formed. He was very savvy in how he did his run for politics. He got people on board these Skype groups to talk about issues that were important to them. And he had people making, you know, notes and getting feelers out in various communities. So I was part of his gay focus group, I presume. But we also know now that he received a load of money from the Pritzkers, Jennifer Pritzker specifically. So he's been paying that back. Hence his last year in office, he paid it back. Hence Biden, you know, <laughs> we're seeing it all. So could you talk about what the strategies are for fighting back on this, given that we know that big pharma, the medical institutions, uh, one could even guess that insurance schemes are involved in this because they've been opening up, not shutting down to this, to include all the quote-unquote human rights groups. And we've seen it. Money is going straight at HRC, uh, from HRC, from the Pritzkers, all of these millionaires, Stryker. I mean, it's shocking. Arcus by Stryker is giving so much money to universities, to medical institutions. We're seeing fake human rights organizations emerge, or is Stryker also funded a, a, a woke institute in Kalamazoo, Michigan, basically, you know, that's fighting for human rights, but that's all code for trans rights. And we're seeing the way in which organizations such as the ACLU, 
has been funded by them. Hence, the ACLU is running hogwash about they want to kick, you know, these women out of sports. No, we're talking about not kicking out these men or these boys. We're asking that they go into male categories or they create their own. Two options, they want neither. So there's a concerted effort to collapse women's rights here. And so in your organization, although you're LGB, fight back. We've noted, and I'm sure you have too, that this focus has been primarily on the lives and bodies of women. And I know we're just mere vagina havers, but could you talk to that? At this point, you know, there's so much work that needs to be done. And there's been such an incredible, um, like, you know, as, as we're talking about these issues on the left, how how the, the left has just been captured. And so it's, it's, it's going to take more people being willing to go out on a limb and speak out and influence their sphere, you know, their sphere of influence. So that's, that's one thing. But I think that what we're looking at trying to offer is to say, you know, for, for example, these protests that we did in February and Valentine's Day was to give the political backing to parents, right? So even just having an LGBT, like, this is why we need to have an LGBT group specifically was to say, you know, we, we are saying no to this T, which means that other people can start looking at why we're saying no to this tea and crack open a dialogue around why this is happening and like we're doing right now to shed some light on some of the history here too. Um, and so that's, but the, but the political part of it is so important because we need to be building alliances and, and coalitions and more organizations need to spring up. They're going to take this on. And it's so big. I mean, it's between the medical establishment, big pharma, the media. I mean, it's just the, 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 the fight, the fight is going to be monumental. I mean, it's going to be, and it's going to be global. It has to be global, you know? And so I think it's, it's a matter of both getting people willing to step out on limb and deal with these issues and speak out and influencing their own community. And then for us as a community to say, actually, it's okay, liberal people, you need to go look at this. You need to go understand that this actually is gay eugenics um, and that, that you need to be on our side, right? Like we need to get liberals won over to, the, to this. And that's, I think that's the, the big task at hand. And how do we do that? You know, that's the question is how do we do it? I agree that most of the focus has been on women's bodies, which makes sense. Women are 50% of the population. And also because straight people want to be seen to be on the right side of history. They want to be pro-civil rights, maybe a little quicker than they were on the gay rights bandwagon. And this has been sold to them as gay rights 2.0, another way to be gay, gay plus. And so it's hard for the average straight person, woman or man, to stand up and say, like, I don't agree that a person can become the opposite sex. That is not, does not make sense to me. And so it's coming from our backyard. It's coming from within our community. And until LGB people, same-sex attracted people, put the focus on the fact that it is not gay plus, that it's okay to question it, that we give straight people the permission to, to say, that no one is born in the wrong body and you cannot change sex and it's not homophobic to say that people no wonder people have not been able to stand up and focus as much 
clearer on clearly on this as perhaps we can because we see it from within we see the harms in our community so part of the work that we needed to form lgb fight back and launch this which we spent almost a year working on this is because we saw that until lgb people stand up and support everybody else nobody can really say anything because they can be called bigots you're listening to savage minds and we hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing we don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you now back to our show as a gay woman, I was a bit turned off sometimes by the talk within our own community, let's say in the late 80s, early 90s of butch femme. I thought, eh, is, are those my choices? And uh, I know I'm sounding very trans right now, <laughs> but I just thought, hmm, what if, like, I don't want to use these words. Because people would say, you know, well, you butcher, you oh, you're a little more this than that. And I'm like, why do we have to talk about ourselves like that? Some of our critics say that we, you know, might have brought this on ourselves in terms of if we can't square the fact that people might not need labels, that maybe now this is a running with the baton, as it were, with labels by men <laughs> trying to fetishize their lives using our recipe. I mean, I, I agree with you about the labels. I've never been a fan of the butch femme thing, but but some people are, and and that's you know it's kind of the old narrative, right? I mean, that butch femme thing goes back to the 20s and 30s. I mean, that's that's an old thing, way back, yeah, way right. way back. So you know that's just, but it's part of the continuation of the culture. And and then one of the things is like the younger generation today. We're talking like 30, you know, maybe 40 and under. Like they don't have the culture. Like there's no culture for them. They don't have any of it. They don't have the backstory. They don't have any of the history. They don't know any of the language that we use. And so it's, it's just like, what happened? Like, how did, how did we get to this point where these young people just have no clue about who they are, or their own history. They have no idea about the fights that we've been through politically. They have no concept of any of it. And, um, but yet, you know, uh, they feel this way and that entitles them somehow to, um, you know, demand everybody in their lives, change their pronouns and call them by another name. And, and I wanted to go back to a couple of things around the, the socialization piece that is so powerful is, is, is for young people is like, they all are so on board with this. And so when one kid says, oh, I'm trans and then all their friends, oh, you're trans. And then they just change, they're changing names. Like they're changing underwear these days, you know? And, and it's really crazy. Um, and so it's, it's like this, when a, when a kid who actually is probably lesbian says, I like girls, oh, well, maybe not. Maybe I'm really just a trans man. And then everybody gets on board and totally affirms all of that. And so now this kid is like leaving in an alternative universe where, you know, some people call them by this name and some people call her by this other name. Um, and and it's it just this powerful uh, socialization process. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to wake up the straight people to, which is, you know, how powerful that reinforcement is when you affirm and how detrimental it is and also how quick it, it facts tracks kids to this, this medicalization thing. Absolutely. I mean, recently on Twitter, someone approached this subject and they said, but we want to give children what they want. If my daughter claims that she's a girl, then who am I to say differently? And I said to her, I said, you know, 
I went on a spice jet flight with my daughter in Delhi when she was about a year old. She wanted to fly the plane. By your ethos, I should have let her fly the plane. This is insane that now the new normal is that parents acquiesce gender. I mean, nothing else would be acquiesced, right? I mean, they even talk about screen time, but no hormones. There's no screen time on hormones. We love our organic fruits and vegetables, but we're all, we're happy to shoot our kids up with these, these horrible, harmful chemicals that are addictive, you know, or cause permanent body damage, you know? Great. Yeah. It makes no sense. That's a, a very good point about, yes, I was at the vet and a woman said she had to keep all five puppies of these big dogs because her toddler child could not be parted from the puppies. Like, who does that? It's crazy. And I could see the, the parallels in affirming a, a small child's gender, quote unquote, gender identity. But, you know, it reminds me of the issue of being kind and pronouns and how people might say, oh, yeah, I don't believe that somebody can be the opposite sex, but I'm going to be kind and I'm going to call them what they want to be called and I'm going to use their pronouns. And they don't realize that that's affirming and that harmful and that it's not kind to tell a child or an adult a lot. <laughs> that a lot. a lot, it is not, it is not kind to let somebody live in a fairy tale when it's not going to serve them for the majority of their life. You're only prolonging the agony or perhaps deluding them into thinking everybody supports me and then they go out and they try to live in the larger world and they don't realize how much pushback they're going to get, how their life might be shortened from medicalization. Just so, so It's just so wrong on so many levels to be kind and lie. And we don't do that in LGB fight back. We don't affirm and we don't um, go along because... We think that it's kinder to be honest. Well, this is an interesting point you make. I was recently talking with someone about this, the difference between being kind and being nice. And I make a distinction between the two because I think the true act of kindness is honesty. I think nice is window dressing and that's what people are engaging in. I compared this to your friend makes a souffle. It sucks. You might lie about it if they've just been left by their partner or they had a death in the family and you might be like now if and it does depend on the humor too and if the uh, report you have with this person is light and funny and it's a funny thing and they come out and they're like oh this sucks and you're like yeah it sort of does and you both laugh I mean there's all kinds of ways that we approach the truth and then there's that moment when we see that they're down and we're like mm, I like that haircut on you it looks like hell but you're not going to tell them that because it's a really bad moment for them personally. Now there's huge differences between these white lies and then the cultural lie that's been going on and on for 20 years. And I'm, I'm gonna revert to talking about Jazz Jennings because I think this, I've called it the 21st century circus. And I mean in the true sense of World's Fair circus where Westerners were bringing back from South Africa, from the Philippines, natives 
putting them in cages. That there's so much written about Henry Louis Gates Jr. has written about the Hottentot Venus, the cruelty demonstrated to this woman in, in France. Now, I think this is a new circus. I think this is a crueler circus in certain ways and, and less cruel in other ways. But we've got families who, tagging on to what you said earlier, Carrie, there's this whole need for social approval. Parents want to be perceived as being progressive, cool, their child's BFF. And in the absence of time, because of late capitalism, in late stage capitalism, we're all working. Some people are working four or five jobs. We don't have time for our children. So the surrogate to time is affirmation and hormones. It's sick, but this is what we're doing. And then I, I could not watch the Jess Jennings show, never. I saw clips of it and it made me sick. And I'm thinking, how did anyone on that shoot feel while they were getting ready to put the sound on and the camera on watching? I would love to talk with people who technically worked on that project, but how did producers advance this? You've got parents saying, oh, but we've known since he was two, did it, what? And I'm thinking of that infamous psychologist who I believe is also based in Los Angeles, who runs around saying that if a child drops her onesie because the color is pink or blue, then that means she is refusing or he is refusing that gender. A onesie! So we're talking about children who are around the age of one or two, who know their gender. I mean, give me a freaking break. So this is all stereotypes. And this is why the feminists say gender is only a stereotype. They're absolutely right. Gender is only evidenceable as a stereotype. So what we have are people making a killing on the gender identity industry. We've all seen it. Voice coaches, people who will help you with your wardrobe. Oh my gosh, I saw you know some straight girls in New York, very young women, running a business showing newly transitioned, quote unquote, men, how to dress like a woman. It's the worst of offensive, yet, Within a blink of an eye, we all say Rachel Dolezal is a fraud. What can we do going forward to fight back about this while not alienating people who need to feel woke? They need to feel like Jazz Jennings' parents. And they are unable, even, I don't mean cognitively, but they are unable because of their will to see themselves as good, to criticize themselves, because this is the biggest obstacle. No one wants to admit they're wrong. But part of our struggle is to get a slew of people to admit they were wrong. How do we do it? I mean, I actually don't think that those are the right targets, to be, to be honest. Like, I think in terms of strategy, I think that there's a huge, I think that the most, most of people, like if we're talking about straight people, I think most straight people understand basic biology. They understand what a homosexual is. They understand what a heterosexual is. I think for most people who haven't been completely indoctrinated into this, um, do understand the real differences here and that, you know, biology is biology and, and there's no changing that fact. And I, I think that the majority of the population actually do get it. I think we just got a little taste of that the last couple of weeks with a super straight, you know, the super straight movement. And, you know, we were making jokes on Twitter about it, the super lesbians and the super bi's and, you know, super gays. And we, we've always been super, you know, come on, but, but really, you know, it's like the, the straight people I think do, uh, are, 
a little bit more rooted in reality, I think, than even our own community, because we were the ones so heavily targeted for indoctrination and so heavily targeted targeted for medicalization. So I actually think it's it's not the liberals that are that are cheerleading this as the the that's not who we'd go after first. I think we need to go after the regular people who have a sense of 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 life. How do we create life? Well, we know how that happens, and and we know it doesn't happen if you have a, a inverted penis or you know right like we know. So I think it's just tapping into and building a movement, I think, with some straight people. I, we need some straight people. We need men um, to, to get on board with this and, and and start speaking out. I mean, that's where I think we need to go is like we we can come out, come at it from our group and say, yeah, we got your back, straight people, you know, politically. We, we got we got your back for this um, and and get them to start talking about it more and breaking it down because they're also now kind of starting to feel some of the heat that we've been feeling, which is, you know, um, the, the pressure to have sex with these people who genetic, you know, modified their bodies in all kinds of bizarre ways. And, um, you know, and I think they're starting to feel a little bit of that heat too. Oh, they're bigots. If they don't, if a man's a bigot, he doesn't want to have sex with a trans woman. Oh, such a bigot, you know, uh, God forbid he be, he's a heterosexual, you know, Oh, how evil to be a heterosexual, you know? And so they're starting to feel a little bit of the same heat that we been feeling for a while um and that's good because it just is going to crack this open so you know what the trans the trans activists like go ahead go for those straight guys and let's see what happens true the more pressure that's on them the more that they begin to see it and that's sort of what happened to me as well it took someone pointing out certain things to me and i had to think about i'm like oh oh yeah i didn't see it until i saw it type of situation right but you both spoke about one thing that is quite fascinating to me, because a lot of the feminists will argue that we were targeted because the argument about patriarchy and controlling women's bodies. But you guys raise a very interesting point here, which is that this seems to have been almost in a way PR orchestrated. People sat down and figured, who do we, who do we get to fold to this? And of course, we're the sex that wants to be the kinder sex. We're the sex that wants to accommodate people. And it's successful. Two days ago, I was told on Twitter that women are the ones pushing this far more than men. And I had to concede their point. I have to agree with that as well. So why are women pushing this aside from our socialization, our need to be seen as cheerleaders? Is there something else going on? Is that women like to pull into the discussion that I have friends who are trans, I have a cousin who's trans, where men might more distantly say, well, I have a brother who thinks he's a woman, but that's, you know, that's just not the case. How is it that we are framing this and we're the ones churning it out more than men? There are two components to that, which is there's the activist billionaires who are kind of uh, mass, I would say to some extent, masterminding the idea of seeding transgenderism in uh, astroturfing organizations globally, not just in the U.S., although they're U.S.-based. And they're, they're seeding a market for the products that, uh, that Big Pharma makes. They're heavily invested in Big Pharma. Jennifer Billick's work talks about this. But then there's the women who are, we call them the handmaidens, who are supporting the ideology because I think it's just a cultural thing with women. We want to support people's 
feels, their inner feelings, and we like to, the idea of diversity is, is like we think that any kind of diversity is a good thing, and we don't like to say no, you can't have access, you can't, uh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't come here, you can't go there. And we like to compliment people. So, you know, we always want to tell people how good they're doing, stunning and brave. So there are a lot of factors about the way that women have been socialized that, that makes us get involved in something that's detrimental to us. And uh, the men can just, you know, they don't have to, they're, they don't have to support other people's inner feelings in that way. I also think it's part of it is that some of the, you know, I mean, for me personally, the majority of people I know that have the males who have done this trans thing were either homosexual or bisexual. So I think that there was a sense of, oh, I, you know, the, a kind of a, a way to relate of being, you know, not necessarily fitting in with gender norms and, and knowing what that's like, um, or kind of a more sensitive guy and you want to, you know, a little bit of take care of the feels and, you know, an empathy toward, toward guys who are experiencing bullying or, you know, who, who get treated badly, you know, like, you know, a lot of gay, gay men have experienced, you know, gay bashing or um, bullying. And, and so I think it's especially the ones that are on the more, you know, feminine side. And so, so there's kind of an empathy for that, you know, for like knowing that these men do face a, a, a threat from, from other men and, and knowing what that's like, I think as women are like, oh, I know what that's like to be scared of men. And so I think that was one of the things that made me sympathetic um, to, to the, to the trans narrative um, certainly. But, but I think that we, what we need to say, what, you know, what I want to say to women is that if, if we participate in the pronouns and the, this whole thing and we affirm you know it's a false reality that we're, we're then affirming because if we can believe that the man can be a woman or a woman can be a man or or that someone can change their sex like we've just created a false reality and and it's so disorienting just so incredibly disorienting like if you listen to people try to talk about the so-called trans people that they know they stumble over their words left and right i mean i've even heard this from some people interviewed on your show who, who struggle this a little bit and it's <laughs> It's because of the cognitive dissonance. So there's this huge cognitive dissonance because we all know what a man is and we all know what a woman is and we can clock somebody's sex within like three seconds. So like we know so quickly how to clock people for their sex and then to then be trying to do mental gymnastics of, oh no, I'm going to call that male a she, right? And, and it's, it's, um, it's crazy making. It's absolutely crazy making. And so like what we need to say to women is like, stop it. Stop creating a fake reality and playing into a fake reality like this is harming us this is harming lgb people it's harming children it's freaking harming adults i mean it's it's just it's just gone beyond insane and so like we also need to understand i think especially people coming from the left um you know the far left who should have an analysis of capitalism should have an analysis that everything's about freaking profit in society um that why would we be cheerleading for for poisoning people and and you know when we know who's behind it we know that the big money is behind it we know there's profit made off of it and it's it's primarily like our bodies lgb people's bodies that are being profited off of at this stage at this up to this point and i mean until very recently with all these kids you know going down this path but but like 
this isn't like a, a harmless delusion. This isn't like Santa Claus and your kid gets older and realizes that, oh, I guess Santa Claus wasn't real. Okay. <laughs> like, it's not, you know, that didn't hurt your kid. That little mini lie, Easter bunny, like it doesn't harm your child for the long run. But to tell your kid that your kid could really be a boy when your kid's really a girl, like that is incredibly harmful. Like that's going to have long-term consequences for their emotional mental health and their, and their potential, their physical body. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, it's so dangerous, this narrative. And it's so frustrating to see people over and over again, it try to use this special pronoun. And it's like, come on, man, this is a lie. It's just a big fat lie. I shared my family rebel without a cause recently. And uh, in the absence of freedom, I have film. And I do a Siskel and a Bear introduction because I like to frame things for my children and my wife and I explained to them how this was one of the first films that dealt with examining youth culture in the States, rebellion amongst teenagers and what that rebellion implicates. Now we saw it also within a similar era of filmmaking, West Side Story, but how kids were joining gangs, kids were finding their peers, finding out which was the good or the bad group as if everything was black hat, white hat, cowboy, Western style. But this is how we were presented cinema in the 50s and watching that beautiful scene of James Dean and Natalie Wood in the planetarium and then towards the end of the film where Slater was shot dead. And I thought, well, in a way, you know, where are the social psychologists speaking out about what is happening? Because this is a very James Dean moment and no one is talking about it, that these kids have been fed such bullshit and they're having parents get woke points for feeding and refeeding the bullshit and measuring on the weight scale how much bullshit they'll feed them today. And no one is speaking out professionally on a massive level because I would like the APA to be speaking out about this in the same way that they spoke out about waterboarding and torture that they were participating in in the second invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. No, we're seeing nothing. And, you know, Billick's work is so important because she's been pointing out the numbers game. But this is down to us because the fact is the minute we participate in this and we do not talk about what's going on here, even within our peers and our families and our friends and online and in real life, we're, we're actually carrying the clout further of these agencies who are gaining hundreds of millions of dollars a year by medicalizing entire generations of children and adults. And no one's wanting to actually do anything about it or speak because they're worried about their job, which is a, a true worry. They're worried about losing their support system. It's another real worry that people have. So you're speaking out, you've written your statement. Have you got pushback or have you gotten a lot more support than pushback for the statement you wrote earlier this month? I mean, we've written some other statements that are more controversial than that statement. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think we're we're still so new that it, we're still trying to put our name on the map. And with the, the way that the media just, you know, does not want to cover this issue, it's, um, we, you know, we're having to look at what's our next move in terms of how do we get our, our message out there to the bigger public. But I just want to go back to the, the, the APA and the medical establishment and the psychological establishment. I mean, if we got to go back a little bit and look at the history of these institutions in this country um, and the kinds of experimentation that they've, they've done on people, both medically, 
um, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, the the the, the, the syphilis studies um, in Guatemala and in the South, um, whether we're talking about the gay conversion therapy methods and the shock therapy and the lobotomies that this field has done. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's just a, a brutal, brutal history um, in the medical establishment that, that people just don't want to learn, know, consider that there really is a history here, a track record. And even going back to the, when, when the, um, uh, the psychiatrist actually started to speak out about what was happening in Guantanamo, um, it was, that was several years in the making before they started to say that maybe waterboarding isn't very good, or maybe we shouldn't use these torture tactics on these prisoners. So that, there was actually a lot of pressure going on behind the scenes. I was I was working for somebody um, who's a longtime um, social worker at the time, kind of tuned into all of this, and I have come out of the anti-war movement. So, you know, I was really tuned in all that, and it was like finally, oh my god, when the first guy sp stood up and spoke about what was happening, it was like, oh my god, finally, you know, this is someone's going to say something about how wrong this is. So I don't think that putting our eggs in the basket of of the APA or um, even the anybody in the psychological industry is, um, I think we're years and years from that at this point. We're years off because they, I mean, the way that they've mandated, for example, gender identity by law in most of the United States, I mean, increasingly HRC is going around the country implementing uh, no conversion therapy or converting gender identity um, so that the psychologists and the counselors and social workers are mandated by law to affirm anybody who comes in their door that says that they're trans, right? So that's in the law now in, in like, I don't know, 25 states or something. So it's, and it's going to, and now with this new, you know, bill, this new Biden initiative, that's it's, it's going to just kind of get worse. So, so those that I, I mean, and I'm just, you know, the, the <laughs> typically the, the field, um, of counselors and social workers, like they're not necessarily the ones that usually come out swinging when it comes to politics. Um, that's not their personality type typically. And um, there's a few out there that are speaking to this, which is, I'm so grateful for those those women and men who, who are speaking out around the, the world about this issue. Um, and I'm hoping that our work will embolden them to even speak out in a, in a more bold way and call this what it is, which is gay eugenics. Um, and, and it's, it's beyond gay eugenics, but this is, you know, this is really how it started. So, so we, you know, we hope that more people will, will come on board, but um, the APA is, has gotten tons and tons of money for this. I mean, well, I think we look at this today, right? It's like Arcus is funding APA. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, follow the money. It's just, this is notable, all the money that is being shared amongst these organizations, because it becomes almost like, remember in the L word, that character that links all the women up by this, you know, hookups? It's like that, but crazier. And the money is in the hundreds and hundreds of millions. So we're talking about a gold mine made by organizations. The Arcus, for our listeners, is not a medical organization, yet they are affecting public policy medical practice because they have the money to do it. And this is where people have to be very careful. In the States and in the West, people are very pro-democracy. Well, if you are at all pro-democracy, be concerned that HRC, the ACLU, GLAD, ARCUS, they're all mixed up in this. And they're having direct effect on contravening the actions of the leaders that we all elect. You can vote for someone, but is it right that the people we vote for are actually being undermined by independent lobby groups that have 
arguably more power in these kinds of situations. They're taking talking points from these organizations. It's no coincidence that the Delaware senator that was recently elected to the state legislature was the press person at the HRC. And I could not get the HRC press office to answer me until he was out the door. Then the HRC press office answered me because I'm asking about their $14 million that they've spent some years on fake news. All about tea, by the way. They would not answer the question. So how is it that an NGO can be taking tax write-offs and refuse to deal with the press ethically? They have zero press ethics. And that guy that won the Delaware State Senate seat in that legislature has been unquestioned about his actions in pushing a lobby and his links to the Obama and Biden administrations. The same thing with HRC. They schooled all journalists how to discuss Levine. Her pronouns are, and you don't say transgender, you say transgender person, and you don't say transgendered, Evie, et cetera, et cetera. It's like ROFL, the whole page, because the ethos, I mean, you were a former journalist, Melissa. You were a writer and a corporate writer, so you know the whole ethos of doing journalism is that you don't take your cues from the people you're reporting on. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like... If they did that, then Trump would never have had to show his taxes, right? I mean, we're we're in the thick of it. Let me go back here to Kerry. Recently, Glenn Greenwald came out a bit shocked about some of the stuff with transgender sports, etc. But then he backtracked. But we know that Glenn Greenwald is close in relationship to Manning. Now, Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning, has been one of those puppets that we're being hit over the head with. Respect her pronouns. I won't. I respect very much what Chelsea Manning has done. I'm on board with the kind of civic duty that Manning and Assange and Snowden have undertaken personally. I mean, we might not agree on this, but I support this. But I will not support the delusion. Bradley Manning, <laughs> or now Chelsea Manning, is a man with a great haircut. Okay. Can you talk about the kind of work and the kind of capture you found yourself previously in? Yeah, so I was working for the Bradley Manning Support Network in uh, 2013 and 2014. And, um, you know, the day after uh, his um, conviction, he wrote this letter outing himself as trans. And we, in the campaign, I mean, I kind of had a, we had a sense that something was going on, that it was in the, it was in the LGBT camp somehow, it wasn't totally clear. Um, and, you know, we did march in uh, D.C. Pride, you know, for, for Manning, and um, that was rough. Um, but, but um, you know, the thing was, is that after it came out, um, I was, yeah, I was totally captured. I was totally cheerleading it. It wasn't the support network uh, necessarily um, cheerleading it so much. It was, it was really that, um, well, there's a lot of factors here going on. But so I led two trans trainings. And this is how knee deep I was in, in all of this um, and how, how, how really brainwashed I was. Um, and so I did it with a, a friend of mine who was a, a you know, a, a man who was pretending to be a woman um, and uh, had gone through all the surgeries and whatnot. And was I was very connected to the, to the big LGBT Inc. in, in DC at the time, um, just kind of peripherally, but hearing what was going on. And so some of the pieces I've been putting together actually been doing a lot of research the last couple of days to kind of fit this all together. And a couple of things that happened that I thought were really interesting in the timing um, was that in 2014, um, Glad got some money from Arcus. 
Uh, let's see if I can get the actual number on this. Um, so GLAD got some money and then they put out a media training about transgenderism. So they had this all ready to go and they, they did a training connected to the LGBT, what is now LGBTQ task force, formerly called the Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Um, and they, so they did a training, they had a big conference, they had this media training and it was like the second Manning came out as trans, I hate even saying that, um, the came out part, but the second he claimed to be a woman, um, and by the way, Manning is um, homosexual as far as I can tell, a homosexual male, um, and that when he, so when he came out, it was like immediately the gates just opened and all these LGBT Inc. organizations were like, oh, we're going to, we're going to step in and we're going to train the media and we're going to tell everybody how to talk about Manning now. And that's how they did it. And, and I'm not clear if there was a bigger orchestration happening from behind the scenes. Um, as far as I can come in for, um, Bradley's campaign was connected to Arcus or anything else, but so I don't, I don't think there was connection there, but I do think it was like, it just opened this opportunity for what the, the, the trans movement had been dying for, which was just some big person to come forward that they could rally behind and train the media on how to speak the right way and say the right thing. And then we've seen the impact of this in terms of how, like now the media reports on crime um, and how it's skewing even crime stats, you know, so you hear a report, oh, this woman went on a killing spree and it's like really Amanda that and they're reporting it as if a woman did it. And they're not even saying now, they don't, they don't even say trans woman. They don't even say that anymore. They just say woman. And then they'll have a picture of like a fugly man, you know, um, it's really crazy. And so like, but that was really, I really think that the Manning, that, that Manning campaign move, that move by, by him doing this, um, whether or not it was orchestrated or not, I think it just opened a floodgate um, for them to have like this left wing, you know, radical to get all the leftists on board. I mean, I think that's, I think that was a big, um, you know, and they just, they just went around training the media and they were all geared and prepped for it because they just gotten this Arcus money. Hooray for them. Yeah. And, and the photo he did of himself in a bikini that was supposed to somehow echo that infamous photo of Marilyn Monroe, I found deeply offensive and no one was talking about that. Just, I looked at it and I thought, we're, this goes back to the fact that I think that this lobby presumes that we're morons, meaning we women that we're illiterate and it's still, you know, 1,600 or something and we don't know how to read books or see pictures. I feel like the assault here, even beyond human rights, is on our intellectual capacity to be understood as thinking subjects. You know what I mean? I mean, I think it's, I think it's just an emotional manipulation, you know, I think that that's yeah. how they've done it. Um, but just to even go back to some of the, the some of the numbers here, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ task force has, has gotten about um, $4 million from Marcus mm. got from 2008 to 2020. So um, that's a lot of money. That's like a huge budget. And they've, they've been really at the forefront in, in passing policy and doing these trainings. I mean, there's like a 400 LGBT Inc. organizations at this point, pretty much close to that. But they've been a big, big culprit in terms of actually passing policy um, and just getting tons and tons of money. Um, and, and GLAD has played a pretty substantial role in this too, especially with the media stuff. Now, the LGBT task force is a social justice advocacy. It's a nonprofit NGO, essentially. Yeah. They're not part of the government for people listening. Mm -hmm. But it is phenomenal how much influence they have over government policies. Like, 
we just saw Biden emerge from his cave now. I mean, he has been invisible since he came into office. And, you know, one must wonder the, the, the contradictions in recent decisions about getting rid of people who, you know, smoke pot, but Camilla Harris. And there's a lot of contradictions within his decisions. A lot of, let's say, not being quite honest about the, you know, COVID money that people were expecting, 2000 and so forth. But when it comes to how he makes decisions or how he's being informed about the tea, who is doing the consulting of Biden? Who is telling him what the reality is on the ground? Because this is something that should concern all of us in and out of the gay and lesbian and bisexual community, because policy should not be a surrogate for elected power. Who is talking to Biden? Well, well, first of all, it's probably pretty clear that he developed a relationship with the Pritzkers when he was vice president. And, you know, a, a Pritzker is the governor of Illinois right now, which is the state that Obama came after out of. So I would look for that in the future. But the other thing is that maybe a lot of your listeners are not U.S. based and don't understand that the medical lobby, pharma lobby in the U.S. is the biggest lobby that we have. And here medicine is for profit. So the medical lobby, may they, they can drive culture. The medical lobby stands to make a huge amount of money from making people, children included, medical patients for life. They, they know what money they'll make from being putting these children onto drugs and surgeries, but they don't even know yet what might happen to these people who after decades of medical experimentation. So so it's kind of an unknown market, but it's definitely big because they know that experimental drugs do eventually cause harm. So so these medical companies have lobbyists, and I'm sure that they are speaking when they're speaking about COVID, they're speaking about other profitable situations and they're influencing culture. But people say, well, they're medical corporations, medical lobbyists. How could they be dictating culture? It's clearly they are. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, even if we're just talking about mental health as a, as a, as a way to make money, just the, the amount of money that they make off of selling pills and they say, Oh, you have anxiety here. Take this, take, you know, this. And if you have depression, take this. If they subscribe a drug to a kid with depression at the age of, you know, 20 or, or younger, even then they've got that kid on drugs until they're 80. Let's say they live to live to 80. That's 60 year clientele base right there. They know that they can make X amount of money. And so that's just like, standard mental health, which, you know, they say one, one in four people now or something like that have, are taking some kind of psych drugs nowadays. So, so the medical industry in this country is incredibly powerful. I mean, the lobby, I mean, the revolving door between, and this is true with a lot of industries, whether we're talking about oil, electric, um, the military industrial complex, um, 
you know, the big pharma, big med. I mean, these are just the revolving door. So you, you, you get this person in a, in a, at the DOJ and then they're out of the DOJ and now they're in this head of this corporate, this, this corporation or vice versa, this head of the corporate now works for the government and under this agency. And so like, if you actually look at American politics, um, most people don't, but if they did actually follow the money, you would very much quickly see that there's a, um, you know, 20 or so companies and, and that they run this country. And that's, um, that's just the reality. And, and so I think most people don't know that and, and they need to know that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's dare I say, uh, you know, the ushering in of fascism. Um, but, but that really is what I think is happening. I mean, fascism can be defined in, in a few different ways, but one of the primary tenets is, of course, uh, the corporate control of the government. Um, and we've really had that for many years at this point. And I think that the question of how does this happen? Um, well, the Democrats have been captured. They've been captured by... Um, they've been captured by um, all of those industries I just mentioned, and they've certainly been captured by, by the trans ideology. Um, so there's just a lot of profit to be made here um, off, of, off of Americans and also things like, you know, war and, and other things that our government engages in for profit. And they have the assist from media because media is no longer doing its job. Hence, uh, publications like mine and, and people leaving, like Glenn Greenwell, leaving The Intercept and doing another substack are necessary because media has become a press office for everyone they're reporting on. And it's no surprise that GLAD says to the media, it has a whole page about what to say about Levine. Whoa, media is not asking tough questions ever. And this is a real problem, not just on this issue, on many issues. Then skip to the fact that these, these companies in big pharma, medical companies as well, are able to advance Hogwash, for instance, now it just came to me today that Rutgers is mandating that students returning to its campus must have the COVID vaccine. This is shocking to me because we're seeing now the obligation to put drugs into our body or be excluded from civil society and this should worry everyone. Remember, COVID, early days, I was in the center of it. We thought, it, you know, the way it was being reported, it was the plague. It's not. It's a bit worse than the flu for the same demographic that the flu was bad for back in the day. So we're not seeing media question anything. So the free assist from media that is also in the White House, that's also reporting back about how brave Chelsea Manning is, this is trickling down to leftists who want to be viewed as supportive as LGBTQ++ friendly, and who can then go out into the world and feel secured that ironically, they can get a job and not be slandered because they wrote something on Twitter saying, mm, I don't think people can change their sex. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing about the media, I mean, even going back to after, I mean, I think when when this people used to think the media was the watchdog and they and it was for a time. And I think the last time we really saw that was during the Vietnam War. And so post Vietnam War, you know, they got smart and they were like, you know, government and the CIA, they got smart and they were like, ooh, we don't want to have the media 
showing dead bodies on TV anymore or like a body count, a daily bot- bad idea, horrible idea. Like we lost support for the war because of this, right? So I think that they've been undermining the press for decades at this point. So like the, the mainstream media, like it's just a joke. Like, I mean, to me, I just see it as political theater. It's 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 almost like comedy if you can look at it that way, if you can not take it so seriously. Um, it's, it's distressing and frightening if you take it seriously, but most of what is happening on, in the press is just lies. It's just big old fat lies. And it, it's, um, and it's crazy for me, like coming out of the far left to like, you know, hear a report on Fox news about the transing of children. And I'm like agreeing with them going, what is happening? What is this alternative universe I'm living in? You know, up is down and down is left. And it's, it's confusing. It's very confusing and disorienting, but, um, but you know, most people just don't, don't really have the time to, to investigate these types of issues or, um, they're just trying to live their life and pay their bills. And, and so we very much feel that in terms of this issue, because there are a lot of people have been fired for coming out or just asking a simple question or just saying, no, I'm a woman and I know what a woman is, or, you know, and, and that's not a woman. And, and, and the, the backlash here um, is, is pretty intense. And, and I think, but I think though, like how, how intense can it be if more and more people were to say, nope, Nope, not gonna, not gonna go with the. I'm not gonna put my uh, pronouns in my email. Uh, nope, not gonna do that. Nope, not gonna go along with this. I mean, if more and more people will just say no to this trans thing, um, then people will stop losing their jobs because it will be unsustainable. It'll be unsustainable. I just want to add my favorite Arcus fact. Currently, is that I listen to NPR sometimes when I can stand it. And Arcus is an underwriter of NPR. So I would say that's the last bastion of mainstream leftist news. And it's captured. It's forget it. But, you know, the New York Times has a staff writer who's a man pretending to be a woman. Like, none of our sources of news in the U.S., um, are reliable anymore. They don't report the truth. It's political theater, like Carrie says. It's just, you know, let's listen to it to see the lies they're telling today. Basically, what's the Trump's fake news has unfortunately become a reality. NPR is, is never been a very good source of information for a lot of reasons, but but um, I would just extend that what you know the analysis that Melissa had on that to, um, for example, Democracy Now, um, who has I think you know also is captured in terms of the trans stuff, but also has gotten a, a number of things wrong on, on war issues too. So there's kind of like, it's kind of like, it feels kind of hopeless when you're like, where do I go to get actual information? Um, but I think that the, 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 the beacon of hope maybe, or whatever we want to call it is like that, that there are people like you and, and other, you know, news outlets popping up and, and more and more people are going to alternative sources and going to YouTube and going to podcasts. And, and I think that that's the trend that we got to follow. And, and I think that people need, people need to put their pocketbooks to support the people like you doing the work and us too. Like we, we're grassroots, you know, we're, we're not getting paid. We don't have a staff. Um, we're tiny, you know, and we want to grow and we want to get big, but oh my God, can people throw, throw us a bone here? Um, so we can actually get some stuff off the ground and, and do some stuff. Um, because it, it takes, you know, organizing if people haven't done it before is an incredibly time consuming job. Um, expectations are incredibly high for, for organizations. Um, and 
And so, you know, we need funding and, and all the people out there like Jennifer Bilek needs funding. I mean, there's, there's people out there really doing the work here and, and really need to be, get that financial backing um, so, that, so that we can keep doing the work.